And I'm teaching making wise decisions. And there is no text for this, so you can remain seated. Let me just kind of get oriented here and make sure I didn't miss anything that I wanted to tell you about. Uh, last, two, last Wednesday night, I gave the first five points or principles. And uh, this is not everything you ever wanted to know about making wise decisions. And as I said, I'm not typically the kind of person that says there's three steps to this or five steps to that and seven ways to have a happy life. I believe in living by principles. But I would call these ten insights or components into making wise decisions. And by the way, we're glad to have the crowd students here tonight. Next week is camp meeting and after that, the crowd starts back up in the month of July. So I know you'll be ready to get back there. God's given us good church here. So last uh, Wednesday night, I talked about the, these five points. Principles come first. Your life purpose comes second. Your priorities, your life priorities are third. Fourth is prayer because we want to bathe every decision in prayer. And fifth is the peace of God that rules in your heart. And remember the word peace in that passage is umpire or daysman, where the Lord makes a ruling in your spirit, uh, safe or out, a peace that says go, or a turmoil that says stay away, that is not my will. The sixth principle I want to give you is called precedent. Precedent, P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T. And here's how precedent affects a decision. What we want to know is what does history teach me about the decision I am about to make? In law, a precedent might be a legal case that established a principle or a rule. In other words, in court, this was ruled on in a certain way in a past case and that becomes a precedent and every legal decision made after that can be referenced back to that as a baseline or information to help make that decision. So, when I'm thinking about making a decision, I want to look back and say, what has been done in the past that is similar? Have I made a decision like this in the past? And if I did, how did it turn out? Am I repeating old destructive behaviors in my life? Am I acting impulsively? For example, am I spending recklessly? And if I am, what will this do to my budget, my credit score, my relationship with my spouse, and other priorities? So we look back to see the history and the precedent of that decision. I've made it my goal in life to not make or to not learn from my mistakes. Now I know you think that sounds terrible, but I made up my mind I want to learn from your mistakes. It's less painless to learn from the mistakes of other people than to make the same ignorant mistakes yourself. So if you have older brothers and sisters if you have other people that you've observed in your life and they've made really bad decisions, you might just sit back and say, 
I will never do that myself. That's precedent. What has been done with this decision in the past? I mentioned this last week, but some people only go to the school of hard knocks. They only learn from their mistakes. But in that school, the colors are black and blue. George Santayana was a Spanish man, a Spaniard, but he was also part of the United States, educated here. And he is probably best known by this statement. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I don't know why. Brother Brad Fain maybe could explain this better than me with his counseling, education, and background. But I've observed people that seem to be in cycles of three to four months. They do well for three or four months. Then they kind of fall off the wagon and they'll make the same mistake and they cycle back around to that same failure again. Perhaps Brother Hall could shed insight on that from his vast experience in counseling in military settings and other settings. But I don't want to make the same mistakes over and over and over. And I don't want to make the same mistakes you've made or that I've made in my past. I want to know the history, the precedent of this. Now the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that I would not have you be ignorant about our fathers. Paul is writing. He said, I want you to pay attention to the things that happened to our fathers in the Old Testament. And he gives a history. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual drink. They drank from that same rock. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And there's a lot to this passage. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says, Now these things are our examples to the intent or for the purpose that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul says, stop, look, listen, look back, see what was done in the past, and don't make the same mistakes. He tells us don't lust like they did, don't be idolaters like they did, don't commit fornication like they did, don't tempt Christ like they did, don't murmur like they did specifically. Verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for our examples. And they were written for our admonition. They were written to educate us to not repeat their mistakes. Everybody please say the word precedence. Amen. We don't want to do the same thing as they did. The seventh principle is the perspective of counsel. The perspective of counsel. The reason I believe counsel is so very important is because every one of us have blind spots. Do you have a blind spot in the vehicle you drive? Many of you do. The other day I was going down to the youth camp to teach and play a little ball and go to church and fellowship with the students and an individual in driving a U-Haul, which means probably not experience, they rented it, uh, pulled over almost into my wife's car that I was driving. And uh, I realized I wasn't really excited about that. I didn't burst into road rage, but I did uh, let my horn know that, you know, he needed to tell that man to move over. 
But I realized he wasn't trying to run me off the road or into the center median. He was, he was just in his blind spot. But if he would have hit me, whether I was in his blind spot or not, I would have been hit. And every one of us have blind spots in our lives. If it wasn't a blind spot, you would be able to see. But I'm just telling you right now, there are things about yourself that you don't know very clearly. You don't see very clearly. God gave you the benefit of elders, parents, pastors, friends, Holy Ghost filled elders in your life that would be there to point out the blind spot so you could see from their eyes what you cannot see through your own. And you say blind spot, it means that that's a vulnerability. Or a weakness. It's something that you cannot see and that you are ignorant of. But don't despair because God gave you counselors. Amen? Your perspective and my perspective is flawed when it comes to personal decisions. And I need the perspective of counselors. Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where no counselor, or excuse me, where no counsel is... The people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. And in the multitude... Of counselors, there is safety. There's something that I know about counsel that is that all, I always trust the counsel in my life. And when I see a person who has always listened to certain people and then suddenly block them out, I know that they intend to make a mistake and they're stubborn and rebelling strong-willed, and they do not want to hear the wise voice of wisdom in their life. Everybody's always made sense until now. You're in love, it's the will of God, and nobody can tell you anything. You're going to take that job, you're going to make that move, you know it's right and you will not listen. It's a blind spot. After the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam was to reign in his stead, and he did. Rehoboam was trying to get a little direction for how he should lead. So he went to the elders who had counseled his father Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived. And they said, you know your father Solomon, great leader that he was, but he made our yoke grievous. And he said, if you will lighten up on the people, they will serve you, and you can be a great king. Rehoboam listened to the counsel of the old men, but then the Bible said that he went to his friends, 1 Kings 12 and 8, but he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. Now, the thing that I want to point out is that 
They were his peers. Now I know friends can give you good advice. But if they're your peer, they probably have as much experience as you do. They're your peer. They don't have the wisdom of more years than you do. And more experience than you do. And even though they may have a high IQ, they don't have the benefit of muchos años, many years. Rehoboam, today was, I was reviewing this again before church tonight. And I saw this other thing on the verse, if you'll put it back on the screen. And which stood before him. It didn't dawn on me before, but there's a second reason these guys didn't tell him the truth. They stood before him. They were subject to him. They had their job on the line if they told him he didn't want to hear. And if the only people you ask are the people you pay, they may not give you the best advice. You need to ask people that can look you in the eye and tell you the truth and not be afraid of any recourse you have on them. You can't do anything to touch them. They love you. They're your elders. They're spiritual. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now that tells me in the absence of counselors, there is danger. Doesn't mean you'll always make a mistake. But you have blind spots. Everybody has them. Well, when Rehoboam counseled with the young men, they said, you know what? You need to go tell those people that my little finger, my finger is going to be thicker than my father's thigh. I'm going to add to your burden. He beat you with whips. I'm going to whip you or chastise you with scorpions. Boy, he liked that. That built his big ego up. And God used that foolish counsel of his peers to cause the people to turn from him and the kingdom was eventually divided. The Bible said that he answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men. Everybody please say blind spots. I heard this statement once that said, if you have yourself for a teacher, you have a fool for a teacher. Now, I believe in learning and reading and being, but if you're self-made, but I just kind of morphed that a little bit, that if you have yourself for a counselor, you have a fool for a counselor. Only God is wise enough to counsel with himself. Everybody else has blind spots. With him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So he is, he is perfect light and wisdom in every way. But you are not. Now I know I'm kind of bearing down on you tonight a little bit. But the reason I am is because you have blind spots. And because you've got a blind spot, when you get ready to make it a bad decision, you're not going to listen. So I'm trying to just knock this in real deep. Amen. So you'll get this point. So do yourself a favor. Surround yourself with godly people. Include some peers, but make sure mostly they are elders. In my life, it's been my parents, my grandparents when they were alive. It's been my minister elders who loved me 
and didn't have a vested interest. They didn't have a dog in the fight about what decision I made. There was nothing to gain or lose. They loved me and they wanted what was best for me. And the purest counsel has always come from them. And when I've sought counsel and listened to it, God has helped me make wise decisions. Not because I am wise, but because I borrow from the wisdom of other people. And the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You remember the emperor that got new clothes? You know that story? Well, nobody would tell him that he was there without any clothes because everybody was afraid that they were going to lose their favor, their job, or their life until a little boy who didn't really care just kind of blabbed it out, and then everybody kind of snickered and said, yeah, he's right. I don't want to live in an environment when nobody loves me enough and feels safe enough to tell me the truth. And I have learned that the older you get and the more authority people think you have, the less likely they are to tell you the truth. And you have to work really hard at making people feel comfortable that they have permission without retribution to tell you the truth, to look you in the eye and say, that's a bad mistake. You need it. Everybody please say the perspective of counsel. The eighth point is people. You're making decisions. You need to consider the people in your life. Now, I'm not saying to please people. I'm not talking about being politically correct. I'm talking about the people that are affected by the decision that you make. Because we live in a community with other people, and your decisions do affect other people. The most selfish act in our society is probably the act of suicide. Because it doesn't take into consideration the real effect on everybody else left behind to deal with your decision. I'm not trying to be mean or ominous. I taught this, these two lessons several years ago. But last week when I was preparing for both of these lessons, I felt the Holy Ghost prompt me. I've got it in my notes. 2015. I want to repeat what I just said about suicide. Amen. The ultimate act of selfishness is suicide because it totally ignores the effect of your actions on other people. You may get to places in your life that you feel that the world would be better off without you. You may feel at times that your family would be better off if you're not around. But I just want to help you tonight that that is a wrong perspective. Your family needs you and you do not need to leave them to deal with the aftermath of that decision. Romans said, and it was in the context of, of Christian liberty, that nobody lives to themselves and nobody dies to themselves. We live and we die a community. So when you're making a decision, you need to ask, how does this decision affect the people in my life? How does it affect my parents? 
my siblings? How does this decision affect my spouse, my children, grandchildren, friends, church, co-workers, ministry team? I've learned that my decisions affect many people. When Lot was making the decision, Abraham said, Look, Lot, you choose which direction you want to go, and I'll take what's left. So Lot chose the well-watered plains of Sodom. Remember that? Now, when Lot made that decision, he, I think he was thinking about what was the best for his flocks and his herds. The Bible doesn't say that he looked at the wickedness of Sodom. He looked at the well-watered plains, and he thought, Wow, wouldn't that be great for my flocks and my herds? So he made a decision to pitch his tent and aim his life towards Sodom. But his wife and his daughters weren't so much interested in the pasture land. They got caught up in the big city life of Sodom. Amen. So there he is. Now destruction is coming. Lot goes to his sons-in-law and he begs them. We've got to get out of this city. Now the Bible said that the wickedness of Sodom vexed Lot's righteous soul. So it appears that Lot remained righteous while living in Sodom. Not so much for his daughters, wife, and sons-in-law. The Bible says that when Lot spoke to them, they seemed to him to them as someone that mocked. They thought, ha, Lot... I mean, Lot had no credibility with his sons-in-law. His wife turns back and becomes a pillar of salt. And I skip this, but the people of Sodom and Sodom said, this fellow came here to sojourn and he's going to become a judge to us? He doesn't have any credibility. Then his wife turns back, becomes a pillar of salt. His two daughters come into a condition of despair and they say nobody's going to marry us so they get their father drunk on two successive nights commit incest with him the children of Moab and Ammon they become the tribes of the, of the nations of Moab and Ammon are born I'm thinking you know what when you made that decision you were thinking about flocks and herds but what about the people in your life what about your wife? What about your two daughters? That was a bad decision for them, Lot. You might have thinking about money and a, a job move. You're thinking about where you can make more money. But God is thinking about how does this affect the souls of your family, the people in your life. If you're a single parent, you need to think hard about remarrying. And some professional is advised against that till your children are grown. I don't want to meddle in your business I can just tell you that the more you move forward in life, the more complicated your decisions are. And you need to think about the people in your life. I've learned from my perspective that it is almost impossible for me to make a decision of any magnitude without not affecting my wife. Okay? And every decision I make can affect our family, this church, my ministry. Some of us have lived long enough to see people make really bad decisions that undermine and destroy their family and their ministry. 
right? So I think it's important that I am accountable to my wife, to our pastoral staff, to our church board, to the elders in my life. One leader said that the person who has the fewest personal rights of anybody in the organization is the person who leads that organization. He said you've got to give up to go up. You give up freedom to go up in responsibility. And decisions that are made in a vacuum are bad decisions. But decisions that are made in community are better decisions because we do not live into ourselves and we do not die unto ourselves. Everybody please say people. The people in our lives. The ninth point is patience. Principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, peace of God, precedent, perspective of counsel, people. Number nine is patience. There's an old adage that says, love can wait, but lust is impatient. A few years ago when I taught this, Brother Buddy Simmons gave me one of his gold nuggets that says, never make a major decision when you are discouraged. Brother Jeff Arnold taught me when I was in Bible college as a guest lecturer, like Elijah, don't make a decision when you're under the juniper tree, when you're discouraged, right? Same idea. When you're fatigued, burnt out, kind of down, that's a terrible time to make a decision. Some people kind of say this, you know, wait three days if you want to tell somebody off. Back in the day, you'd write it in a letter, stick it in a drawer for three days. Now you just vent, press, send, and you wish you would not have three seconds later. Oh. You can kind of tell sometimes when everybody's like, yeah, that was me. You either got that email or text or you sent it. I'm not sure which. Elijah, this mighty prophet of God, after great victory at, you know, on the mountain, he wishes that he would die. He said, it's enough, Lord, take away my life. And he said, I'm the only guy left. You know, you can feel like nobody loves God but you, or nobody loves you but God. You can feel both of those ways. On the screen, Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. But he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. You know there's a lot of proverbs about wisdom, by the way, and about decisions. You notice how many are in these two lessons? Proverbs 21 and 5. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. But of everyone that is hasty, only to want or lack. Proverbs 29, 20. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than him. Daniel said that King Nebuchadnezzar acted in haste. He got furious and made a bad decision because he was all upset. He was hasty. Psalm 40 and 1, the Bible said, I waited patiently on the Lord and he heard my cry. 
And Israel's wandering, Psalm 106, says they did not wait for his counsel. Do you remember when Satan came to Jesus and he said, If you will worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world right now. But Jesus knew they would all be his forever if he would just be patient. Psalm 37, if you're taking notes, write this down. Psalm 37 is a psalm about patience. <clears throat> Don't fret because of evildoers. They're going to be cut down. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Do good. Delight thyself in the Lord. Trust in Him. Psalm 37, 7 on the screen. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospers in His way. Because the man who brings wicked devices to pass. He said, cease from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. But yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. He'll consider their place and it shall not be. The meek will inherit the earth, delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Wait on the Lord. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 35-39, on the screen, Cast out away thy confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now I want you to notice this. After you have done the will of God, after you have been done the right thing and be obedient... God doesn't say you can be obedient and bam, instantly I'm going to reward you. You have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Because God just works this way. You obey, then you wait. And then you may wait some more. And God teaches you to trust Him and not jump ahead of Him. The just live by faith, the Bible says. Now I know some people can never pull the trigger and make a decision. That's the other extreme. But you need to wait patiently on the Lord. Don't be like Abraham who waited a while and then made a huge mistake by fathering a child with Sarah's handmaid and his people have paid for it ever since. God will not bless your mess. He will love you through it though. And I've learned sometimes when people make a, they wait and wait and wait and wait and they still make a bad decision. Do you remember Saul, the first king of Israel? Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. Seventh day came, Saul got real nervous. Samuel wasn't there. He waits through part of the day. And then he thinks Samuel's not going to come. And he forces himself, he says, and offers a sacrifice. And when he does, Samuel walks up. Man, why does that happen that way? And Samuel says, what have you done, Saul? And there are three things Saul said as his excuses. The first thing he said, that my popularity was declining, that the people were scattered from me. People were pressuring me to do something. Peer pressure. And then he said, you know, I'm disappointed because you didn't come. Looks like God is not going to come through for me. 
And then he said, the Philistines are gathered against me. It looks like there's trouble on the horizon. And I knew I needed to do something right now. But you need to be patient. Everybody please say patience. Number 10. Process. Principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, peace of God, precedent, perspective of counsel, people, patience, and process. So, okay, I've done all of these good things, and maybe you don't remember them all, but you're now ready to make a good decision, but how do you unpack it? You need to know the process for making good decisions and implementing them. If you intend to have others understand your decision, because you live in community, you may want them to accept what you're going to do and not just be a shock to them, so you need to talk to them in a right way and at the right time. So here's some questions that I ask. Who should know about this decision? And what should they know? How much of this should they know? And when should they know? Hi mom, I got married yesterday, thought I'd let you know. How? Should they know? And from whom should they hear the news? So who shouldn't I tell first, second, third? There is an order. And that order, I believe, is in the proximity of relationships. In other words, for me, it would be my wife first. Right? Not last. So who should know first, second, third? And what should I let them know? How much information? Some people I want them to see how this decision unfolded. So they can buy into that if they're following a decision that's been made or understand the process. And I typically am going to unfold a pending decision and get the multitude of counselors and the people that are important to the success of that decision I want them to buy in early on. When should I let them know? Some people need to know about a decision when it's still a possibility before it is made. Right? Others need to know maybe when it is made, not just tentative. And if you're seeking counsel, you do not make the decision and then go to them and say, I just made a decision and I want your counsel on it. My brothers and my sisters, that is too late. You will not know the truth because they're not going to waste their breath and they're not going to risk the relationship because if you really cared what they thought, you would have asked them before you made the decision instead of after you made the decision because you really wanted them to weigh in. How should you let people know? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, text, email, phone call, face-to-face. -face. All of the above could be true, right? I could send a tweet that said, you know, Twitter about my father. Or, you know, something that we're announcing in our church. But in our generation, I'm afraid a lot of people are too afraid to talk face to face so they do it all by a text or an email 
Some decisions that should be talked out over the phone or in person. It's a cop-out. Several years ago, Brother Townsend gave me a little cartoon. Guy knocks on the door with flowers. Woman comes to the door, opens the door, sees this man standing there with flowers. And she said, what are you doing? Don't you check your email? We've broken up. Email would be too slow now. It would be a text. <laughs> now, don't judge my grammar on this, but way too many people say way too much, way too often, about way too many things to way too many people. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> that vote of confidence. <clears throat> I will accept that as an amen. <clears throat> Nehemiah gets a burden to go home and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But he's not his own man. He works for the king. He's a slave. He's a cupbearer. And before he announces what he feels he should do, he prays and fasts. And then he waits for time, the right time, to go talk to the king. You know, when you're talking to somebody who's in authority, it's not always a good time. Maybe a good time for you. May not be a good time for them. You may not get their full attention. They may just tell you no if it's a bad time for them. Years ago, when I worked in the general youth division, was youth president for two years, when I needed to go talk to Brother Urshan, our general superintendent, about something, I would go to his secretary, Sister Donna Brown. And I would say, Sister Brown, I need to meet with Brother Urshan. I've got a list of things I need to talk to him about. Let me know when it's a good time for him. Because he's under a lot of pressure. He might just be coming home from a trip. He might be tired. May not feel good that day. You tell me when he's ready and I'm ready. That seemed to work pretty well. Well, <clears throat> Nehemiah went before the king. And the king said, why is your countenance sad? What's wrong? Tell me what's going on. What do you want to make a request of? And Nehemiah begins to appeal to the king. Would you please let me go back? And the king starts asking questions. How long are you going to be gone? When will you return? And the Bible said that the king let him go. He gave him a leave of absence and set a time. And then Nehemiah said, would you give me letters? And would you give me some support? And would you give me timber? And the king gave him everything he asked for. Plus more. He got permission, provision, protection, and power or authority to get the job done. But you notice he prayed and fasted and waited and he had a wise appeal to the man that was in authority and he got more than he asked for. Everybody please say process. I've seen people get their requests turned down. Because of their attitude 
and their poor process. Ethics and respect are very important to earn and keep trust. I want to say this very clearly, that in Atlanta West, it is not easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. I don't like working with people who know they're going to do something they shouldn't do, but they do it anyway, asking you to forgive them. Everybody makes mistakes at Atlanta West. If you mess up, fess up, make it right. But the motive really matters to me, and I believe it matters to God. And if you don't ask first, is because you're either doing the wrong thing or the wrong way at the wrong time. You know you're going to get told no. And what you think you're getting by with is really undermining trust and credibility. And you lose trust and you may lose your job. If you operate like that on your job, with your people, with your superiors, watch out. Some people say, well, the end justifies the means. That is not true. The end, what you want to accomplish, regulates the means. Because of what I want to do, the process is very important. <clears throat> About <clears throat> oh, 12 years ago, 15 years ago now, we're going to build a family life center. We did a great job of preparing and budgeting. We decided it was going to cost a million and a half dollars. Before we poured concrete, we spent $660,000. We spent $100,000 on a parking lot. We had to spend $10,000 on a fire hydrant. Money it was just it went on and on and on. And all of a sudden, our costs were going up by a million dollars. I had been here about five years. I couldn't sleep. I was upset. I was worried. Because the only reason anybody's listening to me right now is because at some level you trust me or the Bible I'm preaching. And if you don't trust the person preaching the Bible, you're probably going to go somewhere you do. All I have is the goodwill of people and the only ministry you have is the one people give you. Now, you could tell the truth, somebody could walk out and be lost, but I'm talking about a relationship that lasts for 20 years, right? So I called a business meeting. We had voted, and I can tell you the exact number of people voted no, four. And we had an open discussion. I was embarrassed, humiliated, felt dumb, felt like a bad leader, but I just laid it out. Everybody that wanted to ask a question who was a voting member could ask any question they wanted. The hardest meeting I probably ever had in my life. But I was honest and forthright. There was nothing under the table. After that discussion, we took another secret ballot vote and four people voted against it and everybody else voted for it. The percentage was actually a little higher to raise the spending li limit over a million dollars. And I'm not bragging. I'm telling you that if you're honest and do process, people will trust you. 
But if you're always cutting corners, manipulating, and not being straightforward and honest, you will not have the favor of people in your life. You've got to have the right process. Well, that story was not in my notes. And I probably couldn't have told it ten years ago. Stubborn, self-willed people do not trust God or the people who are over them in leadership bypass the proper processes. So I've learned that if God is in it and if you are wise, the answer to the people you're asking permission of will almost always be yes. And if it's no, thank God. And if you think the people in authority made a mistake, submit and trust God. He will either change their mind or he will show them later, or he'll still work it out after his ultimate will, like Paul, who was told to take a Jewish vow by his elders. He obeyed bad advice. He got arrested while he was in the temple. But ultimately, the will of God was done. I've learned that when the answer's no, when I'm processing a decision, it may be a matter of timing, it may be a matter of submission. It may be that I'm not ready. It may be that the situation is not ready. When I was in Bible college, a good friend of mine, Pam Smoke, her smoke, who's now a missionary to Tanzania, was talking to me about her decision. We were on corral tour. The Holy Ghost spoke to me. I'd never said this before. And I said, Pam, I don't know why, but something tells me that there's something on the other end of the line that is not yet ready. I think you're ready, but my feeling in the Holy Ghost is that something's not ready. So sometimes you're just waiting on other things to unfold in the will of God. Timing, timing, timing. Amen. Everybody please say process. In this decision, what do the people to who I'm accountable need to know? At our church, our board, our pastoral staff, I told you my spouse. Should they help in shaping the decision? Am I willing to listen to their input and advice? And this is really big. Everybody say process, please. Are you presenting the decision in such a way to allow people time to absorb the process, to process it, to accept and to buy in? And are you presenting this proposal, for example, in a way that is fair and balanced. I've had people come to me before and sell me on something they wanted done and leave out a whole number of other factors that they should have told me. And you owe it to people you're under that, whose authority you're under to say, it's okay to say, I really would like to do this. Here are the pros and here are the cons. Here's the positives, here's the negatives. But I think it's fair that I tell you there's a downside to this decision. And in fairness to you, I want to let you know the balance of it. See, now you're being honest, you're admitting a blind spot, or you're making yourself vulnerable to make sure that you're going to make a wise decision. Process. Process. Don't just sell... But you want, knowing that there's a downside, make sure you present both sides. Principles, 
purpose, priorities, prayer, peace of God, precedence, precedent, the perspective of counsel, people, patience, and process. I'd like the worship team to come. I'm not quite finished. So, here we are on Wednesday night, and you're sitting there saying to yourself, Oh, Brother Johns, it's too late. I've already made a really bad decision. What do I do now? Well, let me give you some insight. <clears throat> you know, if you've sown some bad seed, and that harvest has come up, and you're reaping what you sowed, and it's not very pleasant, just remember that the law of sowing and reaping always works. To good or to bad. So if you sow bad seed while you're reaping that harvest, why don't you right now start sowing good seed because it will also come up and you will outlive living through and paying for your bad decision. But don't just feel like it's a life sentence and don't make one bad decision behind another. Stop in your tracks and sow good seed while you are weep, reaping a bad harvest. There's a scripture, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. We'll go past that. Amen. I've learned this. You can put Jeremiah 2.19 on the screen. Jeremiah said, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your own backslidings will reprove you. You know what I've learned? The Bible said the way of the transgressor is hard. And when you make a really bad decision... It always has consequences. And it doesn't mean that God's punishing you. That's what the lake of fire is about. If He chastens you, He loves you. If He doesn't chasten you, you're an illegitimate child, according to the book of Hebrews. Amen. But I've learned when you make a bad decision... God will use the consequences of that decision to kind of turn you back to Him. To kind of feed into you, to chasten into you the character of God that wasn't there to start with. Prodigal son made a bad decision. He really paid for it. But he came back home. And ultimately you would say he was saved. So in the end, though he wasted his inheritance, you could say he saved his relationship with his father. So if you made a really bad decision, you need to look past what you're reaping now to what the most important thing of life is and that you're saved. If you're like Naomi who came home empty, you need to just say, you know what? God can bring good out of all this bad. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Amaziah. He made a lot of bad decisions. But he was going to war and he had 300,000 soldiers. But then he got some money, 100 talents of silver, and he hired 100,000 mercenaries, mighty men. So he was now going to have his 300,000 men plus another 100,000 men to go to war. The prophet came to him and said, it's a bad decision. You should not have hired Israel to go with you he said, you can go with them into war, but God's going to allow you to be defeated. King Amaziah said, what am I to do about the hundred talents of silver? 
I've got money invested into this business deal of hiring these mercenaries to come fight with me. The answer from the Lord was, am I not able to give you much more than that? You see it? 2 Chronicles 25 and 9. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And the next verse says, Amariah, Amaziah separated them. Now they went home mad. But Amaziah just said, you know what? I'm just going to cut my losses. I've lost 100,000 talents, but I'm not going to disobey God. I made a mistake, but I'm going to stop dead in my tracks. And I'm not going to make another bad mistake on type of the past one that I just made. Amen. Praise God. Well, I can tell you a few more people. Remember Herod? He told Herodias' daughter, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. She wanted the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. The Bible said he was sorry he said it. But because he had said it, and for those who sat with him, he stuck with his word. Pilate's wife told Pilate about Jesus. Be careful what you do with this man. I've suffered many things because of him in a dream today. Pilate's wife went to him and said, don't do it, Pilate. I've learned that God has often used my wife to say, you know what, Daryl, I don't feel good about this. You can call it woman's intuition. You can call it having a praying wife. It doesn't mean that either one of us are always right. But I have learned that when my wife doesn't feel good about something, I stop. And I pray. And we talk. One time in 38 years almost, I thought she had bought into a decision that I was wrong. And I was surprised that she wasn't with me. And I apologized. And when I could, I resigned from that position. It took a while, I know. The wives are feeling pretty good right now, aren't you? Pilate's wife warned him, and he would not listen. You know, the word that we use a lot to sinners is repent, right? You know what the word repent means? means a change of mind, right? So you don't have to be a sinner to repent. And you don't have to have sin to change your mind. So the biggest thing that we can do tonight is say, God, by your help, I'm going to change my mind. If I made a bad decision, I'm going to change the way that I think I'm going to turn around. Would you stand right now? The blessings of God come to us when we make wise decisions. God will not bless our disobedience to His Word. He will never violate His own principles. But I also know this, that no one can prevent the blessings of God in my life when I obey His Word. God longs to bless your wise decisions. Amen. If you have a few moments to come in prayer tonight, would you just join me at the altar? We're going to come pray together going to practice for Sundays, please leave the aisles open. Please gather as close as you can. Really what I want you to do is just say, God help me. 
Tomorrow and the next day, you're going to be making decisions. Some small, some big. We want God to help us make wise decisions. Amen.